Join me in prayer. Father, our hearts are filled with gratefulness. You are kinder to us than we deserve. You are more patient with us than we deserve. You transform us and shape us and mold us into your image. And for that and for a thousand other things, we are grateful to you. I thank you for this gathering that you've brought together, uh, people who love you and know you, people who want to know you, people who want to follow you, and I pray that you would do your work in us this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to know, hearts to obey, that we might be a people characterized by love. We pray that you would work this in us through the reading of your word and through the work of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. It is good to be with you this morning, church. Um, those of y'all who got to go on the men's retreat, I hope you had a really good time. I'm glad that you're back here and we get to continue thinking and praying about who God would have us to be. Um, if you've taken a few moments to read our text this morning, you'll know a couple things. You'll know, one, that it is not very long. It's just three verses. doesn't take long at all to read it. Um, you'll also notice that it's not a particularly complicated passage. Um, like several have been the last few weeks, it's not hard to understand what Romans 13, 8, 9, and 10 are about, but it is hard to do. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, To think is easy, to act is hard, and the hardest thing in the world is to act in accordance with your thinking. I might quibble a little bit with the first part of that. I think thinking can, in fact, be hard if we're doing a good job of it, but point taken. Thinking is the easy part. Doing is hard, and the hardest thing in the world is to act in accordance with what we say that we think. The very clear emphasis theme in this passage is love. And as will often be the case over the next weeks and months and years, I couldn't help but begin thinking about Ken as I was reading and thinking about this passage. Uh, Justin mentioned at his funeral that Ken had a knack for making a beeline to God's love with any passage. With a passage like this, there's no beeline needed. Um, the theme, the emphasis, the call in this passage is love. And so Romans 13, 8, 9, and 10 is where we will be this morning. Hopefully you've found your way there by now. Um, if you haven't, go ahead and do so uh, now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can snag that. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep that Bible as a gift from us. Romans 13, I'll start in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the plan this morning is to anchor all of our our thinking and praying around four questions that this passage will, will answer for. So the first one, if you're taking notes, is the question, who must love? Now you may notice something strange right out of the bat here, particularly if you're remembering what we uh, read last week. So if you remember, verse 7 ends with the assumption that we are going to have debts or obligations that we will need to pay. To some people we'll owe taxes, to others revenue, to some respect, to others honor. But notice how verse 8 starts. Verse 8 says, owe no one anything. Except love. So verse 7 says, pay what you owe. Verse 8 says, don't owe anything. Um, It feels a little bit strange, these two connected together. But the piece here I think Paul is getting at is there are debts that can be paid, and there are debts that though you pay them, they still remain uh, in the red. You you still have, have more to pay. We'll talk about all that here in just a moment. But I want to draw your attention to the idea of owing or obligation. The idea is this. For those who follow Jesus, we are indebted to love. You notice just real clearly, real easily, the emphasis on love in all three of these verses. Don't owe owe anyone anything except love. Why? Love fulfills the law. Verse 9. You've heard about all the commandments, and all these are summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so there's this idea of connecting obligation or debt to love. In fact, there's a few places in Romans where the idea of an obligation comes up. The next place it shows up is in chapter 15, verse 1, where Paul says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Why do we have that obligation? Again, as is the case here, it's because of of love. If you keep reading in chapter 15, when you get to verse 27, Paul says the Gentiles are obligated, they have a debt to share their material blessings with the Jews in Israel because the Jews in Israel have shared their spiritual blessings with the Gentiles. There's a sharing going on. There's love. At the very beginning of Romans, Paul actually says he himself is indebted. He's obligated to both the Jews and the Gentiles to bring the gospel to them. The idea of obligation and love come tightly together in the book of Romans. In fact, this is all over Paul, where the call for those who follow Jesus to love takes center stage. I'll just mention one for you, because I don't think we need to belabor this point. I think you get it. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is an interesting passage, because it's bookended by uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, which won't be too surprising if you know how to count. But in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul takes up some controversial topics. He's talking about tongues and prophecies and and these big gifts of the Spirit that are kind of eye-catching. And right in the middle of both of those difficult passages, Paul begins this long excourse on love. 
It's where he says things like, if I have great faith but don't have love, it's meaningless. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says all of the work of the Spirit can be distilled down into three things. Faith, hope, and love. He says these three abide. So in the midst of all of these things going on, we can distill it down to three central things. And of those three, Paul says we can further go down. He says the greatest of these is love. And so the controlling piece in all of this is that those who claim to follow Jesus must love. So if we ask the question, who must love, the easy answer in Romans 13 is anyone who claims Christ must love. But notice, Paul says not only that we must love, but he says that it's a debt that a Apparently, we can't quite pay off. So this leads us to our second question. Why is love a debt that can't be cleared? So Paul has just talked about all these debts we're supposed to pay. Taxes and honor and respect. But here he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. That's the, love, that's the debt that we can't quite clear. And here's the reason. Love is characteristic of God's new creation. Love is characteristic of the work that God is doing. So in our our current experience, uh, we tend to operate on a zero-sum idea, right? So if I go to the store and I spend money, I no longer have that money. If you and I have one piece of pie and I eat the pie you don't get any. Zero sum. Um, Or like uh, last weekend, we were coming back from New Mexico, and we had a flat on the way, and the reason that was particularly frustrating was not because simply flats are annoying or it takes more time, but because it means time spent there is time I can't spend sleeping in my bed. Zero sum. I spend something here, I don't get it There, That's what we are used to working in. But in in new creation, in God's kingdom, uh, that's not quite the way things work. In fact, there, when you spend, you get. So, let me give you some ideas to help us wrap our mind around this. When you place faith in God, instead of losing faith, what do you get? You get more faith. You see that? Um, in, in God's world, when you share your possessions with others, instead of losing possessions, you get greater joy. You gain brothers and, and sisters. When you spend for others, you get more joy. It's this that breeds the idea of uh, to give is more blessed than to receive. That only makes sense in a world that's not zero-sum. Jesus says strange things like, blessed are the poor, huh? blessed are the hungry, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek. That only makes sense in a world where giving is actually getting, where spending results in more. And so the idea is the same with love. When you spend love, it actually creates 
more. There was a 19th century Lutheran pastor named Friedrich Philippi who describes love this way. He says, by its very nature, love is a duty which, when discharged, is never discharged. That's a strange thing to say. Here's the reason. Since he loves not truly, who loves for the purpose of ceasing from loving. So if you try to love someone in an attempt to pay off the debt you owe, he says you haven't actually loved. Instead, by loving, love is intensified. The more it is exercised, the less can it be satisfied. See, love is is different. It's strange. When you spend it, you feel a desire welling up in you to love more. And when you are loved, if we're loved rightly, and when the Spirit is working in us, love reciprocates love. And so the idea is, when you actually do the work of love, it's not something that takes from you, but it gives and produces more. So why is love a debt that can't be satisfied? Because love is characteristic of God's work. And in God's world, spending actually results in abundance. So we said that Christians are those who must love, and we must love because love just begets more loving, and this leads us to the third question. Who must we love? So if we are supposed to love, who is our love supposed to be directed at? Well, the first place to start is to say that it should be directed to other Christians. That's the context here, right? Uh, In Romans 12 through 16 especially, Paul is talking about relationships within the body. What does it look like for those within the church to exist together? And in Romans 13, the call in this place is that we ought to be those who love one another. Paul even actually quotes Leviticus 19.18 in verse 9. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, if you were to go back and, and look it up, Leviticus clarifies who your neighbor is, which is interesting when you get to the question Jesus gets asked, but we'll get to that in a bit. Leviticus 19 says that your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. And so who is it that we are supposed to love? Well, the first place that we should practice love is right here, among each other, with other Christians. If you don't love your brother and your sister, then nothing else matters. And we should maybe remind us of Von Goetz's quote earlier, to think is easy. Remember this? To act is hard, and the hardest thing in the world is to act in accordance with what you think. If you've existed long in this church, or in any church, then you'll know that loving is far easier said than done. Yeah? People, all of them, have a great knack for being irritating, frustrating, hard to live with, 
hard to do a job with. You, you split up tasks and think, I'm doing this, and, and they will do that, and maybe there's miscommunication, maybe there's um, something that goes wrong, and you find out that that's not the case. People have a great knack at annoying each other. Right? Like living together is hard. Living together and loving together is harder still. And the call that Paul gives us is to love one another. Easy to say. Everybody agrees it's a great idea. But when it comes to practice, and when you remember, they did this to me that one time, it's much easier to hold a grudge than it is to extend love. Love in the abstract is easy to affirm. But the problem with love is it's never merely in the abstract. Love requires concrete action. When you'd rather go watch TV, love demands that you give someone else your attention. When you'd rather stay in bed and sleep a little longer, love demands that you get up and serve. When you feel like you've done enough, you've served enough, you've helped enough, you've been patient with people long enough, love says, give more. In the abstract, love is easy. On the ground, love is hard. Bart put it this way. Love, therefore, is love of men, of concrete, particular men, and it is this precisely because it has no preference for any particular man. Love for the neighbor is love for him and his strange, irritating, distinct createdness and constitution. If we are to love people, that means we are to love people who irritate us at times, who annoy us at times. So who do we love? We, we love our, our brothers and sisters. We love those who love Jesus. But we shouldn't let Jesus' words be far from us. There's an occasion where Jesus is asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' conversation partner, I think, assumes that there's going to be some kind of restricting force on this. Maybe my neighbor is my family. Maybe my neighbor is those who I go to synagogue with. Maybe my neighbor is other fellow faithful Israelites who don't collude with the nasty Romans. Something like that. But Jesus tells a story that intentionally subverts the expectations of his conversation partner at every turn. He tells a story about a man, you know the story, who's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe not the most ideal place. Jerusalem, the holy city, Jericho, not so much. Maybe he should have picked a better city to go to. Nonetheless, that's the direction he goes. And on the way, he gets mugged. He gets beaten up, he gets his stuff taken from him, and he gets left for dead. There, bleeding and hurting on the side of the road. Two people pass by, a priest and a Levite, people who know the law. Good, righteous people. They take a look at the guy, size him up, think, no, got places I need to be, he's unclean, probably shouldn't have been on this road anyways, I'll move on. Third, a, a 
Samaritan comes by. You know the kind. Half-breed, nasty, good for nothing. He stops, loads the hurt man up on his donkey, brings him to an inn, doctors him up, bandages, pays, and Jesus asks the question, who's the neighbor? Well, the answer's fairly easy. The neighbor is the one who was neighborly. Jesus' point, your neighbor is whoever God drops off in front of you. And I think from the point where Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? And he answers with, whoever's right across from you. It's hard to ever read Leviticus 19 the same way. And so I can't help but imagine when Paul quotes Leviticus 19 here in verse 9, He's got everything that Jesus has said rattling around in his mind. In, in fact, that seems to be the point in verse 8. Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So if, you, if you're reading ESV, it says, For the one who loves another. Now that can sound kind of generic, not specific, uh, but the Greek is actually very specific, concrete. It's, it's the other, kind of the person who's right in front of you. And so some translations, maybe yours if you've got something other than the ESV, actually uses the word neighbor here to try to capture this. The idea is that whoever happens to be in front of us is our neighbor who we are supposed to love. And so who is supposed to love? Christians are supposed to love. Why is love a debt that can't be fully paid off? Because love always begets more love. It's part of God's work. And who do we love? Well, we love each person. We love whoever God has providentially placed in front of us. The last question, and this is really the, the meat of the passage. Why? Why must we love? Now, I think the answer that we would maybe expect is that we love because God loves. That's what John says. We love because God first loved us. And in the larger context of Romans, we can get here, right? Romans 1-11 tells us about all God's work for us and bringing us to himself. Romans 12 to 16 are kind of the overflow of that. If God has done all of this, then how should we live with and among each other? We can, we can get that, but that's not the point that Paul takes here. Paul turns a, a slightly different direction in verses 8 through 10, and Paul's reasoning is pretty simple. We love because love is actually a fulfilling, a summing up of the law. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 8. So Paul says this in every single verse. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Why? For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, verse 8. Verse 9. For the commandments, and then he, he lists them. These, all, these commandments all come from the Ten Commandments, so that ought to draw your mind back to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and then he says, oh, and any other commandment. He says, all these are summed up, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, 
Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills the law. It sums up the law. It is where the law is pointing to. Paul is is following Jesus, who's following Leviticus. Logic's pretty simple. Um, If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't kill him. Right? That's the point of the law. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't sleep with her. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't say false things about them. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't wish you had their things and that they didn't. You won't covet. The logic is, if you love, you'll almost accidentally kind of keep the other commandments. Furthermore, not only will you not do things to them you shouldn't, but you will even do kind things to them. If you treat them as you wish others treated you, not only would you not harm them, but you would even do them good. You don't like it when people hold grudges against you. At least, I don't. So if we love, if we treat our neighbor as ourselves, then we won't hold grudges against our neighbor. We don't like it when people assume that the first impression they have of us is the true impression. If we treat our neighbor as ourselves, we won't do that. We don't like it when uh, we've been in the wrong before and someone then assumes, because I've done wrong here, I'll also do wrong here and here. We want forgiveness. We want mercy. We want fresh starts. And if we love our neighbor as ourself, we'll find ourselves being a people who are quick to forgive, who don't hold grudges, who are merciful and patient and kind. Love, Paul says, is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, The early church had a helpful way of capturing some of this sentiment. It was sometimes said, whoever is able to help someone who is in danger of dying of want, if he does not relieve him, murders him. We are responsible one for another. The things that we do matter and have an an implication. Now, we could, like last week when we're talking about submitting to to government, there's a whole lot of trickle-down things that can affect this. Well, what about this case? Or what about this case? Or what about this case? But the point in Romans 13 is the knee-jerk reaction of Christians ought to be love and giving of ourself for another. But I want you to notice one other thing here. Paul doesn't simply say that love is the goal of the law. His argument is that by loving, we're actually doing something. We actually, Paul says, keep the law. Look at verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And then here's what he says. For the one who loves the other has fulfilled the law. Now, that's a, a pretty easy tie back to Romans 8. So here's just as a kind of an aside. 
One of the reasons I love that we work through books together is meanings of particular verses get fleshed out in larger scope. So look back at Romans chapter 8. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. Who's us? Well, us is those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul says in Romans 8 is there's this interesting thing that happens when the Spirit takes up residence among God's people. God's people start doing the thing that they couldn't do before. They start keeping the righteous requirement of the law. In Romans 13, Paul says a really similar thing. The law is fulfilled in us when we love by the Spirit. So if you have the Spirit, you will learn to love, and by learning to love, you'll fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Now let me be super clear here. If you heard me say, keeping the law gets you the Spirit, that's not what I said. If you heard me say keeping the law gets you forgiveness, that's not what I said. If you heard me say keeping the law gets you salvation, that's not what I said. The connection is when Jesus saves, he gives his spirit. And his spirit changes and transforms us, that we then become a people who do the law, who fulfill the law, who love one another. And this ought to affect the way that we think about ourselves, that we talk about depravity, that we think about each other. Because there's a real and effective change that happens when the Spirit comes. See, I I think often, in an effort to, to shore up ourselves against a salvation by works, we bang the depravity drum. And we're right to hit that drum, particularly in our culture, that tends to just assume people are basically good, and if you give them the things they need, good will come. Right? We know better than that. And against that idea of thinking that there's nothing deeply and intrinsically broken in us, we ought to hit the the drum that says, we are depraved, we are broken, we are cut off from God. However, Jesus doesn't leave us as he found us. And sometimes I think, in an effort to keep ourselves away from any kind of salvation by works, we accidentally lessen our view of the effectiveness of the Spirit. We say, Jesus saves us, and we put our faith in Jesus, and that saves us. We add nothing else to it, and we hammer that so hard to the neglect of the actual effective work of the Spirit that that's all that we ever communicate. But Jesus gives us His Spirit, and His Spirit actively, effectively, actually does work and change in us. 
The Spirit in our life, Paul says here in Romans 13, truly works righteous law-keeping. When we love, Paul says, we've kept the law. In Romans 8, Paul says, it's those who walk by the Spirit who fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Not by circumcision, not by dietary restrictions, not by keeping festivals or or any other thing of, of the law. We keep the law because by the Spirit we learn to love, which is where the law was pointing all along. And so when we ask the question, why do we love? The answer is because love fulfills the law. So who must love? We who claim Christ must love. Why is love a debt that cannot be paid? Because love is a characteristic of God. It it just begets more and more loving. Who must we love? Whoever God providentially brings in front of us, whoever he crosses our path, whatever kind of random person shows up, that's who we must love. And why do we love? Well, we love because God loves But also here in Romans 13, we love because love is the fulfilling of the law. Let me read our passage since it's real short. I get to do this. Let me read it one more time and we'll just end with what Paul says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the privilege of knowing you as Father. We praise you that you've not abandoned us in our sin, that you've not grown frustrated and said, that's enough, but that you sent your very Son to die for us and to give us life. Not only that, but you've also sent us your very Spirit to change and transform us into your image. That we might be a people whose knee-jerk reaction is love. And so I pray for myself, and I pray for those here, that we would be a people who increase and grow in love. May we love those around us, May we love those that you drop in front of our path. May we learn to love others the way that you love us. And we pray this in the name of our King. Amen.